Brothers and sisters, the last time that we gathered, we examined the first two verses of the sixth chapter as we sought to make sense of the identity of the sons of God and the daughters of men. We learned that based upon all that we had seen from the previous chapters leading up to this, based upon the context leading up to those two verses, and based upon the whole story of redemption throughout the scriptures, we learn that the Bible teaches the sons of God were those of the godly Sethite line, and the daughters of men were those of the ungodly Canaanite line. Just as a side note, if these were angels, they would be fallen angels. And scripture never denotes or ascribes the title sons of God to demons. Whenever the scripture denotes a fallen angel, they are referred to as devils, demons, evil and unclean spirits. Never sons of God. Now then back to the sons of God, the Sethites. The Sethites, they did not preserve the purity of the godly line. But rather they corrupted the godly line by intermingling and intermarrying with those who were forbidden by God, the Canaanites. Now, you should ask at this point, how do we know that they were forbidden by God? There is no explicit passage that speaks of God forbidding the act of this marriage. We know that this intermarriage between the righteous and the unrighteous was forbidden by God. Because of the obvious lineages provided for us in the fourth and fifth chapters. And also because of the promise of God in Genesis 3.15. What was the promise of God? I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. The Lord God promised that there would be opposition. Between these two opposing seeds. This opposition would also imply a separation between the two seeds. And we are given glimpses into the directions of those two seeds in the fourth and fifth chapters. They are going in different directions. They are known for different reasons. The Canaanites are city builders who violently rule with instruments that they have fashioned for warfare. While the Sethites are people who walk with God by faith. The Sethites don't build earthly cities that will eventually fall, but rather they they look forward unto that heavenly city. That has been prepared for those who walk with God by faith. The Sethites are prophets. They are preachers of righteousness. The Sethites are the line through which that one. Who would ultimately give rest to his people. From their painful toil. And from the their painful struggle against sin. He is. The Sethites are that, are that one through which he would come. And as they waited in hope for the rest giver. Darkness began to close in around the righteous line of Seth. The serpent's uh, serpent began to, to coil around the line of the righteous and slowly constrict the life out of those who were known for walking with God by faith. One by one, the line of Seth began to shrink as they became smitten, taken by the world, the flesh and the devil. The Bible says in in Genesis 6, 2, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive 
and they took as their wives any they chose. The sons of Adam, the Sethites, they committed the same sin as their parents who saw forbidden fruit, that it was good for food, pleasing to the eye and desirable to make one wise. And so they, just like their parents before them, who saw and took in disobedience, the Sethites saw and took and in doing so rebelled against God. As we said last week, they, they continued this pattern of the unfaithful son in Scripture. Adam was an unfaithful son. The Sethites were unfaithful sons of God. Israel was an unfaithful son of God. And all of those point to the one who would ultimately be the faithful son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This intermingling, this intermarriage between the Sethites and the Canaanites produced corruption within the godly line. This was one of the factors that would bring about worldwide judgment upon the earth. And as we said last time, though, it is not the greatest factor or it was not the greatest factor. The greatest factor that would bring judgment upon the entire earth was that this intermarriage between the righteous and the unrighteous became a threat to the birth of the skull-crushing seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. The increasing evil, the lure of sin, the marriage between these two seeds has produced a corruption that was threatening the very birth of the one, the one righteous seed who would crush the head of the serpent. The devil was determined to destroy and corrupt Every seed that came forth from the woman in order to save his own skull. Now think about this. And yet, this was no surprise to God. And yet, all that is taking place was determined and willed by God before the foundation of the world. This is a part of God's ultimate plan. This is no surprise. The corruption of the righteous line. The threat upon the Holy One of God. All a part of God's plan. And it was the primary reason why judgment was coming by way of the flood. There was a threat. The righteous seed must be preserved. Now then, this morning, with God's help, we shall take a closer look at the corruption of mankind. And how the corruption of mankind ironically, is meant to be an unlikely source of hope. The corruption of man is, is meant to be, ironically, an, 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 un, a, an unlikely source of hope. And I have just two points for you this morning. Number one, I'm sure the one you've all been waiting for. Who are these men of renown? The Nephilim. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide with man in man forever, for he is flesh. <clears throat> His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Brothers and sisters, we come to yet another passage that has caused a great deal of debate, a great deal of confusion, and has robbed me of much sleep. 
what, who exactly are these Nephilim, these men of renown? What was Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, intending to communicate with the mention of these Nephilim? And, and here's another important question. What does this have to do with redemptive history altogether? You may have noticed that when we first began to exegete the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis, we only surprisingly consider the first two verses of the sixth chapter. And not, as is typical, the first four verses of the sixth chapter. Did you notice that? Why? I'm sure you wondered. The reason being that those who take the view that the sons of God are angels typically attach the fourth verse of the chapter to the first two verses and automatically make presumptive connections. Meaning this, those who believe that the sons of God are fallen angels believe presumptively that the Nephilim are a race of so-called giants that are a product of, the, of this union between angels and men. Therefore, they connect these verses. They believe that the Nephilim are some kind of hybrid human beings that possess great powers, and that is why they're men of renown. Brothers and sisters, that is, frankly and simply, not the way that we appropriately interpret the text. For starters, we have already established that the sons of God are not fallen angels, but they are those of the godly line of Seth. The daughters of man are those of the ungodly line of Cain. Judgment was coming to those people because of wickedness. The wickedness of that generation. But nowhere in the passage does it even imply that the Nephilim are a product of this ungodly marriage. What does the passage say? Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. The scriptures do not say the Nephilim were the product of this intermarriage. But rather, it simply states that their presence is on earth. They were there. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, the Nephilim were there. They lived during that time. We tend to assume that they are the product when in actuality the scriptures simply say they were there. What details do we have about them? Let's start with the most obvious, the elephant in the room, if you will, <clears throat> the belief that they were giants. Let me ask you a question. What's a giant? Because many of you are bigger than me. So I would consider you a giant. Why do we assume that they are giants? I think for two reasons, because now listen close to this, because the King James Version and the New King James Version, if you have those versions in front of you, translate the word Nephilim, which is not in those versions, as giants. If you have one of those translations, you will not see the word Nephilim, but you will see rather in its place giants. What are they doing? They are following in the tradition of the Greek Septuagint, which translates the Hebrew word Nephilim as gigas or 
giants. How many of you have grown up with the New King James or the King James Version as pretty much the norm of what you expect as a translation? Most of us, listen to this, all of you have. All of us have. And based upon those translations that we have grown up with, we have grown up assuming that the Nephilim are actually giants because our culture is a New King James, King James culture. We are just barely in the past maybe 10, 15 years coming into different translations that are now determining the culture of what we believe about the, about the Bible. If that makes sense, let, let me say this. We must realize that many things that we believe, we believe so because we have been socialized into accepting certain biblical traditions without seriously studying them ourselves. Meaning this, we've been raised with certain traditions without actually finding out what they mean for ourselves. I believe that this idea of giants is one of those cultural traditions that we've grown up with without ever challenging. Today, we have newer and frankly better trend. Let me just say real quick, I could tell you a number of things that I would say, do you believe this? And you would say, yeah, I would say so. And I would say, have you studied it? And you say, no. Why do you believe that? It's just what I've always been taught. Who taught you that? Where did you learn it? It's cultural. Let me go back to what we're saying concerning interpretations. Today, we have newer and frankly better translations that have kept the word Nephilim in the text. Why? Because those translators are less sure that that the word giants is an appropriate translation. So they've kept Nephilim rather than translating it into giants. Here's another reason why we think it's giants. Because in, in Numbers 13.33, we see another mention of Nephilim. And when we see the mention of Nephilim, there is a report about them. It's a bad report. And the bad report is that there are giants in the land. We can't take the land. We are like grasshoppers in their sight. It was a negative report. That's important to, to, to keep in mind. We make the mistake of assuming that the Nephilim in Numbers are the Nephilim in Genesis. Now, would we be wrong to make that assumption? Would we be wrong? Let me say this again. Would we be wrong to say the Nephilim in Numbers are the same Nephilim in Genesis? Yes, we would be wrong. Why? Because if we say the Nephilim in Numbers are the same Nephilim in Genesis, the Nephilim in Genesis never died in the flood then. So they can't be the same. If we believe that the Nephilim in Genesis are the Nephilim or in Numbers, then the scriptures are unreliable. Because the Bible says that only Noah and his family survived. And if we say the Nephilim are there in numbers and they're also there in Genesis, then throw your Bibles away. It can't be trusted. So how do we make sense of this? Brothers and sisters, what is the context? What's the context here? The context is that there is an ungodly union between two opposing seeds, the righteous and the wicked. God is going to bring judgment upon the land. Why? 
because of wickedness of humanity, because of the threat upon the birth of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. And then we are introduced randomly. And, and, and think about this. Just randomly, Moses would say, hey, yeah, there was a whole bunch of giants there too. Does that make sense in the text? Within the context, would that make any sense? Just like we said in, in the beginning, does it make sense with the flow that, that we are tracing these godly lines and then all of a sudden Moses says, yeah, and then angels came down and married women. It does not flow within the context. So what flows without the context? Wickedness. There is a threat upon the security and preservation of the righteous line of Seth and the skull-crushing seed of the woman. And there is another example of wickedness in the Nephilim. Wickedness is the context. The Nephilim are wicked. So the security of the righteous line of Seth is, is the context. The preservation of the skull-crushing seed of the woman is, is the context. And the Nephilim are another threat. And they are also another example of wickedness. Were they giants? Maybe. Not the point. Not the point. And here's, here's also something that is wrong for us. We start to look around at people who are bigger than us and say, maybe you're one of the Nephilim. Is that the point? Is that the point? The point is not big people. Not at all. The point is wickedness. And you are just as wicked as big people. Says the biggest man in the room. <laughs> Wickedness is the point. But perhaps the best explanation for Nephilim and, and the term Nephilim is this. Nephilim is a term for fierce warriors. Not giants. And the phrase mighty men of old, men of renown, follows in that it describes their ferocity and ferocity and their skill, not their size. Do you hear that? Nephilim is a description of their ferocity and their skill. That is why they're men of renown. But listen to this, dear brothers and sisters. The description of ferocity and skill is not meant to be positive. It's meant to be negative. Why? What's the context? Wickedness is, is filling the land. And this wickedness of ferocity, this wickedness of these particular people is another threat to the righteous line of God. They are a threat to the line of Seth. Again, the context, the earth is vile. Righteous are being threatened and because of this, judgment is coming. And listen to this. If, if Nephilim is a reference to ferocity and skill, and, and to wickedness, then it makes sense why they can be there before and why they can be there after. Because does the flood destroy sin? No, it does not. Therefore, sin endures before the flood and sin endures after the flood. That makes the best sense in the light of the context. When we see the men in, in, in Numbers chapter 13, they are, there are some men of great size, but are they all men of great size? Absolutely not. We see that as we study the context of Numbers, but rather men of great size 
is speaking simply to all the inhabitants of the land as being powerful and fierce. And it fits. It fits. Were they, were they, were, were there men of great size? Yes, there were. We see that in men like Goliath. Goliath, by the way, is believed to be over eight feet tall. Were every, were all men Goliaths? Not at all. Not at all. As far as the ancestry of the Nephilim goes, the Bible's silent on it. Why? Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If we start to read other books, like let me find out who they are by reading books that are not canonical, like Enoch, then we are tracing rabbit trails for no reason. The Bible is the sole infallible rule of faith and obedience, not the book of Enoch. And there's a reason why it's not included in the, in the Bible. If the Nephilim are just fierce warriors, then again, their lineage is not important and it's not the aim of Scripture. Also, this definition of ferocity and, and, and not lineage, again, it applies to people before and after the flood. Brothers and sisters, these were wicked men who were known for their tyranny and their abuse upon humanity. What is going on? God is showing us this. His cup of wrath is filling up. God is showing this. The wickedness of men is causing God's uh, judgment to be on, on the very cusp of being poured out upon all of humanity. Don't lose sight of that. That's the point of the passage. That there is a particular focus and aimed being shot at or, 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 or targeted in this text. Don't miss the forest through the trees. I've said that before. What does that mean? Don't lose sight of the big picture. That's what's going on. What is being displayed before our eyes is the very tragedy of man's fall from the very heights of the glory of Eden to the very depths of man's sinful depravity. This is no fairy tale. This is not mythology. This is not the story of Zeus and Hera. This is a true history of man and is turning from walking and communing with God to walking and communing with Satan. Don't lose sight of that. Number two, the intentions of man's heart. Verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures tell us that God saw the wickedness of man was great. We know that what the Lord saw upon the face of the earth, though, was not news to him. Does that make sense? The Lord God did not learn for the first time of the wickedness of man. But this statement is meant to cause us to see a contrast of what the world was before the fall and what the world has become thereafter. After God completed his work of creation, the scriptures tell us that that God made a declaration concerning his creation, his work. Genesis 131. And God saw. Everything that he had made and behold. It was very good. All that had come forth from the hand of God was not just good, very good. 
all creation, all the earth, all that dwelled within was pure and without defilement. And man, the very apex of God's creation, the creature with the with the only creature with the honor and privilege of being created in God's image. He also was not only good, but very good. Man was created holy like God. Man was created with a right and true understanding of God. Man was created upright. That is, man was created with integrity of soul. He was without sin. He had a true knowledge of God. He had a true knowledge of God's law. Man was, if we can somehow fathom the thought, pure and uncorrupted. Man was created in righteousness and holiness and with a true understanding of the law of God as it was written on his heart. And God made this declaration of all of his work. God saw. God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And then man rebelled. Man rebelled against his loving creator. He acted in opposition to the commands of God. When man broke covenant with God in the garden, he became an enemy of God. An enemy who freely chose to seek out many devices for his own selfish pleasure, rather than freely choosing to worship and obey God. And now Matt, God makes a strikingly different declaration upon creation and all who dwell therein. The Lord saw. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord God declares, now listen close, that all of humanity was, is vile and corrupted by sin. There, there is a comprehensive and pervasive evil that personifies. Every single human being. Brothers and sisters, this comprehensive evil was not just shown, listen now, in the actions of humans, but also within the very hearts of human beings. Not just shown within the actions, but this this wickedness is and was profoundly dwelling within the hearts of all humanity. And God declares that every inclination... Every desire was evil. God declares that every course of action, only evil, continually. Now, we often assume that that generation must have been extremely wicked. As if God's declaration on man's heart referred only to those who lived in that particular generation. Those who lived before the deluge, before the flood. Perhaps that was a peculiar and godless generation, the likes of which the world has, has not seen of or heard of since. And yet, listen to this, in Genesis 8, 21, after the flood, after God's judgment, when there were only eight individuals left on the earth, one of them being righteous Noah, God's assessment of mankind is the same after the flood as it was before the flood. For the intention of man's heart is evil from youth. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21. This declaration from God is not meant or is meant to be a permanent verdict on humanity for all time. This, brothers and sisters, is the doctrine of total depravity. 
We find it again in the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalm 14.2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who, who seek after God. Imagine that. There, there is a, an anthropomorphic explanation. The, the psalmist is, is attributing human-like qualities to God as if God would look down, survey the land, and look for someone who was righteous. And when God surveys the land, what does he see? They have all turned aside, verse 2. Together they have all become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Of all the billions upon the face of the earth, there is not one. And the Apostle Paul makes that same declaration in the book of Romans. There is not one. Now think about this. Young people and older. Can this be true? Do you believe that this is not just true for the people in Noah's day, but it is also true for the people who live in this day? Do you believe that? I want you to really think about this. Do you believe that every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart, their mind, is only evil? Continually. Of every human being. Not one good act. Not one good wish. Not one good thought, Tony. Only evil all the time. Do you believe that there is no one who does good? Doctors, nurses, teachers. God bless them. Give them a raise. A large raise. My wife is a teacher. Humanitarians. No one does good. You know people who are not believers. And what do you make? What, 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 what judgment do you have on them? You say, but they're good people. Don't you say that? Not say, but they're good people. What is God saying? God is not declaring that everyone is as bad as they could be. Don't misunderstand total depravity. Being depraved does not mean that man is as sinful as he could be, as he possibly could be. In the days of Noah, think about this. I believe that we are safe to assume that every single person who lived upon the face of the earth was not a murderer. Do you hear that? We're safe to assume that every single person who lived upon the face of the earth in that day was not a murderer. There were people who were not murdering. I believe that we are safe to to assume that every single person who lived on the face of the earth during Noah's time was not a thief. There were some, probably many, maybe thousands and millions who did not steal anything. There were those who, by human estimation, would be considered, as we say, good people. And yet... In spite of their not murdering, in spite of their not stealing, in spite of their, their, as would appear, good human nature, they were judged right alongside of murderers. They were judged right alongside of those who lied and cheated and stole. Think about this. 
those who we would deem good people were judged by God right alongside the Canaanites. Right alongside the Nephilim. The old woman who never hurt anyone also banged on the ark begging to be saved. The little boy who was a Canaanite who seemed like a sweet young boy. He also may have been judged. Or also was. Judged by God right alongside. Brothers and sisters. The flood is not a nice story. We should not be so presumptive to paint Noah's Ark on our children's walls. Unless we want to add millions and millions of dead bodies floating in the water. Weren't there kind people? Weren't there loving people? Weren't there those people who practiced many virtues? Did, did they have to be judged alongside of the wicked? We'll answer this more in depth in a moment. But depravity does not mean that people don't practice many good virtues. People do good things, kind things, noble things, loving and sacrificial things. As Romans tells us in Romans 2.14, the Gentiles do by nature things that are required by the law. It's written on their hearts. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 11, though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. We only need to look around the world and see that there are many people who, although they make no profession of faith, rebuke us, put us to shame with their acts of kindness and their acts of goodwill toward others. And yet, in spite of the many acts of kindness and goodwill, these so-called good people will be judged right alongside of the wicked. Right alongside of the Jeffrey Dahmers, right alongside of the Osama bin Ladens and Saddam Husseins and the Hitlers, they will be judged right alongside with them. Why? Because man has become corrupted by sin. I, I might use this illustration to explain depravity. Imagine a clean glass of water, undefiled, untouched. No, imagine we go outside into the sewer. And take a pinch of mud from the sewer's waters and place it into this pure glass. The water is now corrupted. Is it as corrupted as it could be? No. I could have taken a handful of mud and placed it in here. I could have filled this thing up to the top with mud. The water is not as polluted as it could be. But it is, it is polluted. It is defiled. It is now unclean. There is no water left in the glass that has not been touched by impurity. All of the water has been affected. No, you don't want to drink it. Brothers and sisters, because of the sin of Adam, we have all been touched by sin. Every part of us is corrupted. This is not, or th this 
there is not one part of our being that is holy. There, there is not one part of our being that is upright and pure as it was when we came from the hand of our Creator. We did not come from the hand of our Creator in, in this depraved and polluted state that we now find ourselves in. The Bible says in Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one drop. And death through sin, so death spread through all men because all men sin. That one sin corrupted the entire glass. Adam's sin corrupted the whole of humanity. And when Adam fell, we all fell with him. Sin has affected, infected every part of our nature. Our minds are corrupt. Our reasonings are twisted. Our wants are self-satisfying. Our understanding is darkened. And our wills have been disabled to the will of God. The Lord saw that wickedness of man on the earth was great. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. This is exactly what the passage in Genesis is communicating to us. That's the goal. That's the aim. What is it? We can't please God. We cannot present anything pure to God. We have no desire to do so. We can do nothing that is right or righteous in God's sight. We pollute everything we touch. On everything we touch, we leave the the, the print of unclean hands. No matter how hard we try. Our sin ruins everything. The Bible says in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's a grim reality. We are totally sinful, utterly helpless, absolutely unpleasing to God. Every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart are only evil all the time. But but what about what about the good things that people do? And we talked about that. What about the kind things, the, the noble things, the loving and sacrificial things that 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 we do? That people do to make this world a better place. What about the Gandhis of this world? What about the so-called, uh, and I don't know much about her, the, the Mother Teresas of this world? Didn't they do good things? And these things, yes, they did do good things. They did right things, things that we should commend. We should encourage those who who do good things to continue to do good things. But let us be clear, not one of those good things is acceptable or pleasing in the sight of God. Brothers and sisters, someone cuts you. They use a knife to cut you. A good thing or a bad thing? Before you answer, ask, why are they cutting me? It depends on why I'm being cut. I could be being cut by a mugger who intends to kill me, or I could be cut by a surgeon who intends to save me. Same knife, same act. And yet the person's hand has a different motive for their incision. In the one case, its motive is to heal, to care, and to restore. In the other case, its motive is to rob, steal, and to kill. It's the same action. Yet they are bound by different motives. This may help us to understand when the scriptures say that all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before God. Because when our righteous works, our good deeds are outside of Christ. They are meant not to honor 
obey or exalt Christ, but they are meant to honor and obey, exalt ourselves. Every good act that is done outside of Christ is not for the glory of Christ. It's for the glory of ourselves. The Puritans said for an act, an action to be good, it must consist of three things, the right motive, a right rule and a right end. It had to be of a right motive in faith. It had to be of a right rule in accord with God's word. And it had to be done with the right end for the glory of God. Anything that was not done by faith, by God's word and for his glory is of no value in God's sight. Why? Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. In the eyes of God, God is not pleased with the good acts of men. God is not pleased with the, with the good acts of those who reject him because they are not done for his glory. They are done for the glory of man and not for the glory of God. And this is also another reason why Babel comes tumbling down. While while humanity is drowned in judgment. Because they did not seek to worship and serve the creator. But they worship and serve created things themselves. The virtues of the unconverted, the good deeds of the unconverted are what Augustine called splendid sins. I love that. Splendid sins. Good job, sinner. Say that to your unconverted family members the next time they do something good. Good job, sinner. You want to win them to Christ? Let them know where they stand. We can do no good thing to please God. All we can do is commit splendid sins. The doctrine is glim, isn't it? It says that we are if we are left to ourselves, we are lost. But the doctrine also punctures all of the optimism of this humanistic world that claims we can make the world a better place. Michael Jackson. Heal the world, make it a better place. How are you going to do that? How will you do that? Humans are wicked. Humans are the reason why this world is so dark. And yet, this truth brings us to the good news. The good news of the gospel. That that God has sent his son to save us from our sin. That, That righteous judgment will come from God because of our sin. Total depravity is actually not bad news. It's good news. It's daunting. It's sobering because it reveals to us that we cannot save ourselves and that we should not even try. Doesn't that sound like good news? For all of the work that we try to do to earn a right standing before God, for all of the good deeds that we do, trying to make ourselves acceptable, we can rest from our work knowing that Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's good news that there is one who can save us from all of our efforts. How hard do we work even on a daily basis? Even on a daily basis. When we wrestle with, am I even saved? How could I think that thought? How could I act that way, treat my wife this way, talk to my kids that way, speak the way I speak at at my job? Who am I? I've got to be more perfect. I've got to be more perfect. Not to say you shouldn't strive for that. 
But if you think your perfection is what will earn you a right standing before God when this is all said and done, then you will be judged right alongside of the wicked as well. There is not one thing you can add to the perfect finished work of Christ. It is complete. You can add nothing to it. And your strugglings with sin, your wrestlings with how could I act this way? Praise be to God that you are unsatisfied with yourself. Praise be to God that you want more of him to be shown in your life. But never confuse your desire for more of God with your need to add to the finished work of Christ. It is done. It is complete. The Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. This cup of wrath slowly filling up until it would be poured out. You can get the image of that upon sinful humanity. He's fixed a time. Not, let me clarify something, not for the length of man's life. Not from this day forward, men are only going to live up to 120 years because we see later men live a lot longer than 120 years. But God has set a time before his judgment comes. I will give men 120 years of hearing a preacher of righteousness call them to repentance. Do you see the mercy of God in that? Could God had at the moment the sons of God? Could God had at the moment of Adam's partaking of the forbidden fruit wiped out all of humanity? Yes. But he allows a godly seed to be established. He allows a righteous seed to be developed. He allows 120 years of, of preaching from Noah. And there is more grace that is given even before Noah. Noah's calling men to repent, calling men to turn from their sins, to turn to God. What grace from God. And some of you may be sitting here today. And God has allotted a time for you. Before you will leave this earth. And you are right now being exposed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? So that you can say he talks well or he talks too fast. No, so that you might repent of your sins and turn to Christ before you stand before him. This is an act of grace. This is a means of mercy. Take it before it passes your way. You cannot save yourself from the judgment of God. Those who reject the free offer of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will stand before God judged and condemned. But you can confess your sins. Confess that you are a sinner today. You could place your faith in Christ. Trust that by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, you can be saved to the glory of God alone today. And escape the wrath of God that is coming upon all those who reject his son. This is the free offer of the gospel. Don't make the same mistake as those who were judged in the waters. Let us pray.